wrestling fans. Welcome to the June 2022 episode of Charting the Territories. And it's a very special month, June, because it is my co-host's birthday. Well, first, my name is Al Getz and my co-host, John Boucher. This is his birthday month. And da-na-na-na-na-na, you say it's your birthday. Da-na-na-na-na, it's our podcast's birthday, too. Oh, let's take a cha-cha-cha chance. Yeah, it's uh, the <laughs> two-year anniversary of the beginning of this monthly podcast. Our first episode was in June 2020. We've made it two years, John, without either of us cutting a promo on the other and quitting in disgust or disgrace. No, so that's good. That. Uh, so your yeah. birthday was, I guess, a few days before we are recording this episode. Is that correct? Correct. All right. Did correct. you do anything uh, interesting or exciting or different? Well, well, well see, you just, you just sang me a, a Beatles song. I saw Paul McCartney for my birthday. So that was my, so I oh. that, was, that was exciting. Did you run into uh, Carrie Silken? I believe he was there. I did not. I didn't see him in... Uh, in Jersey, I saw him in Syracuse. Oddly enough, huh. um, my 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 in laws live up there, and uh, mother in law got got tickets, uh, and they got they got a good deal. So, wife and I went up. Sarah and I went up. So that was uh, that was great. I've never seen him, so that was fun. Then you know, this past weekend went saw my saw my dad for Father's Day. Did the Father's Day birthday combo. Lots of very nice. Lots of beer and bad bad but delicious food and uh man that was about it excellent well this month on the podcast in addition to celebrating we're also going to look at the second quarter of 1978 in leroy mcgurk's oklahoma slash louisiana territory in this quarter the assassin ruffles the feathers of stephen little bear the big cat apparently does not love candy and the promotion increases their footprint in Louisiana with the addition of a new title. We'll also look at Bobby Shane's big run in Gulf Coast in 1971, including a couple of impressive houses in Mobile, Alabama, for Shane's matches with Cowboy Bob Kelly and Lee Fields. And we'll also have all our regular monthly features, including John playing Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. This month I learned... And as always, we kick it off with shit John bought me off eBay. Now, John, last <laughs> month, you bought me a Eugene pillow. I did. Ah, so hopefully this month you have topped yourself. Oh, what's this? Oh. <laughs> That's some spooky music. I don't know what's happening. Is someone or something coming out? What's going on? It's La Momia! Oh my goodness gracious! La Momia from Titanus LNL Ring, the Argentinian-based promotion from the 60s and 1970s. Yes, this month, John bought me off of eBay a record of uh, theme songs from Titanus LNL Ring. And this is an original album. Uh, It was uh, produced in 1972. So this... uh, And it's... It's looks it's in about that much shape. It's definitely used. 
<laughs> it's well used, but uh, you know, it's it's intact and it's playable. As you heard, it had a little bit of static, uh, and that was after me giving it a nice cleaning. But uh, yeah, so this is an album of theme songs of many of the wrestlers from Titanus and El Ring, including Caballero Rojo, Pepino, Don Quixote, uh, La Momia, Martin Cardagian, and Yolanka. Now, Yolanka, John, do you know what Yolanka is? No idea what that All is. Right. It is a yogurt. It is a. It was a brand of yogurt that spo- that was a sponsor of Titanus and El oh. Ring. And in true, you know, cross promotion fashion, Yolanka is also the name of a wrestler in Titanus and El Ring. Uh, it was a Technico. Uh, it was a. It was a space alien type creature. And what's very oh. interesting is I was just looking at some videos. Uh, for Yolanka, and on a couple of occasions, Yolanka was uh, transported to the ring in a, in a spaceship, in a little miniature spaceship. Uh, and on at least oh. a, on at least one occasion, the spaceship actually came from above into the ring, and then Yolanka would step out. And John, if you think about it, you'll know why I bring that up because that's going to play into something we're going to talk about much later on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so I found that interesting. But yes, yeah, so this is a an album uh, of theme songs from Titanus NL Ring, uh, which is really just an amazing piece of history. So, John, uh, did you have your eye on this or is it just something you've always like you have a set search for anything involving Titanus and see what pops up or what had this work? I out? do. I have I have a recurring search for Titanus because there's always like, you know, because I, I, I'm, I'm always finding stuff like this, like I that I had that I had no idea existed. Yeah, um, neither you know, did I. And I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't get into bidding wars with Chris Hero over some of these things. <laughs> he's also a big fan of Titanus as well as all, all uh, the other really off the wall uh, promotions. What's the one uh, from Japan that Ryuma Go? was involved in where uh, his, he always wrestled against aliens. Oh, yeah, I don't remember the name of that. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but yeah. Maybe I am getting in bidding wars with him and I don't know it. Who knows? Uh, that's yeah. possible. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Well, uh, if, if that is the case, we beat you this time, Chris. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, yeah, so sorry I think you have I think you have redeemed yourself for the Eugene pillow. <laughs> With this record, I'm going to, I'm going to go scare. I'm, I'm going to go play it real loud. I'm going to play that spooky La Momia theme song yeah. and try late at night and see if I can scare my neighbors into thinking that they're <laughs> going to be attacked by an Argentinian mummy. I just love that right. La Momia was, was a baby face for such a long part of Titanus's run. Yeah. There's that's, there's, that's one of many, many weird things happening there. Yeah, because the the mummies in the U.S., uh, Benji Ramirez, and of course in later years, uh, Prince Karras in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, they were always heels, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. But from Argentina to Louisiana and Oklahoma, let's look at the second quarter of 1978. Now, don't forget, you can see all these statistics and other info that we're talking about, plus lots more, on our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. Now, the first thing to discuss is the rankings for the territory, which take into consideration the week-by-week spot ratings of all the wrestlers in the territory during this time, with tag matches counted separately from singles matches, as well as how many weeks during the quarter the wrestler or team was uh, competing regularly 
during the quarter. And so the top six rankings, uh, and these are all singles, uh, but number six was Eric the Red. Number five was Randy Tyler. Number four was Paul Orndorff. Number three was The Assassin, and this, of course, was Jody Hamilton. Number two was Ernie Ladd. And number one was Ray Candy. Uh, Ray Candy, you know, he got the mega push here in 1978. In fact, uh, we're going to talk about a Superdome card that just happened. But later on in 1978, Ray Candy and Ernie Ladd are pretty much the main draw of a Superdome card that uh, apparently drew a really big house. But the Superdome card that we're going to refer to happened, I believe, April 1st, right at the very beginning of the second quarter of 1978. And the main event was Harley Race defending the NWA World Heavyweight title against Dusty Rhodes, uh, where Harley won by disqualification. Andre the Giant faced Ernie Ladd in what might have been a North American title match. It went to a double countout. Now, John, have you seen any footage of Andre versus Ernie Ladd from anywhere? I think there's a WWWF match maybe from around this this time, maybe 70, 78, 79, somewhere in that time period, I think, unless I'm imagining it. Well, hopefully you're not imagining Andre versus Ernie Ladd matches. Uh, uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe that's your wildest imagination. <laughs> but Andre and Ladd went to a double countout here. And then there was a third title match, which saw Thunderbolt Patterson beat Stan Hansen to win the Brass Knucks title. Now, Thunderbolt didn't hold the title very long. Uh, they say that Hansen regained it in Savannah. But that's a phantom title change, almost certainly. Um, Right after this card, both Thunderbolt and Stan were full-time in Georgia, but Savannah was not a Georgia town at this time. John, do you know what territory ran Savannah? Savannah. No, I don't. Is it it something we discuss later? No, it was uh, Mid-Atlantic. For whatever oh. reason, uh, it just wasn't drawing well for Georgia. They offered it to Crockett, and I think they used uh, Crockett's plane to get the crew down there. Oh, there you go. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, so but so Hansen gets the Brass Knucks title and what's probably a phantom title change, but then Orndorff beats Hansen for it in Shreveport. And then a month after that, Orndorff beats Ladd to win the North American title. So as the spring turned to the summer... Paul Orndorff was a champ champ in Leroy McGurk's territory. Now, at the Superdome, Paul defeated the Brute, while the Assassin lost to Stephen Littlebear. In a strap match, Ray Candy beat Skandor Akbar, and Eric the Red beat Randy Tyler. Now, Candy beating Akbar was the beginning of the end for Skandor's several years long run in this territory. Uh, a while back, John, we we did a special episode where we looked at Akbar's full career up through 1977. Yep. And of that, I think, 12 or 13 year period of time, a good half of that was spent in Leroy McGurk's territory over, you know, a number mm-hmm. of different stints. But this particular run uh, began in, I think, the fall of 1973 where he came back, he had been a babyface, so he came back and uh, reformed his tag team with Danny Hodge, but then he turned heel on Hodge in late 1973, and for most of the next four-plus years, 
He was here. Uh, there was about a year period where he was in Australia, Georgia, and that brief run in the WWWF. But aside from that, he was here that whole four-year period of time. Now, in uh, 77, he was injured. Uh, I think he broke his arm in a match with Sweet Tan. And again, this might have been a storyline. I'm not sure. But he started managing wrestlers. At first, he was managing the medics. Uh, then he ended up managing Dr. X. But for the first few months of 1978, he was more of what I will call a player coach, similar to Buck Robley, where he's managing the heels, but also wrestling and presented as a legitimate wrestler, not a, you know, Jimmy Hart or J.C. Dykes type of guy where the whole appeal is to see them get destroyed. He was presented as a credible, you know, offensive threat. But after leaving here, Akbar wouldn't come back until the fall of 79 after the split between Leroy and Bill Watts when he would go to work Hmm. for Leroy and he would pretty much be the cornerstone of Leroy's uh, promotion, uh, Tri-States Wrestling in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri for most of its two and a half year run. But three of those matches at the Superdome, Orndorff versus The Brute, Eric the Red versus Randy Tyler, and The Assassin versus Stephen Littlebear, they were all part of uh, three of the bigger feuds going on in the territory. Orndorff and Brute were finishing up their feud. Eric the Red and Randy Tyler were starting theirs. And The Assassin and Stephen Littlebear were in the middle of what ended up being a feud that stretched all the way into the fall. And one of the early angles in the feud saw Little Bear take off the assassin's mask during a TV angle with the assassin, of course, covering up his face and running from the ring. And and John, a while back, we talked about the spoiler. Uh, uh, you know, all these wrestlers, we think, you know, that they never, never lost their mask. And as it turns out, a lot of these wrestlers did lose their mask. We talked about the spoiler. Obviously, they do the thing where they take the mask off and then he covers their face. But the yep. spoiler at the end of one of his runs in Texas was absolutely unmasked and revealed as Don Jardine. Um, yep. I believe that Jody Hamilton was unmasked for Ann Gunkel. Um, towards hmm. the end of All South Wrestling, they had done a big angle where uh, Ernesto uh, was unmasked and acknowledged as the former assassin. And I believe that Jody unmasked and, and was billed as himself. And also at the same time, the Missouri Mauler turned babyface and started going by Larry Hamilton because he, of course, oh. he and Jody were brothers in real life. So yeah. that was one of the things they did really towards the end of All South's run to try and, I guess, you know, to, to try and continue to draw well. And apparently it didn't work out. So yeah. other wrestlers, John, off the top of your head that people think never got unmasked, but you recall that they did. Can you think of any? Uh, I think there's like a, there's a mass superstar match sometime in the, uh, late 70s early 80s maybe for crockett i want to say black jack mulligan unmasked him like off the top of my head i'm not 100 sure that that's correct um it's too bad they never unmasked uh the junkyard machine in the wwf (laughs) well because now we'll never know who he was and I, i think i don't know if it was wrestling or wrestling 2 that i remember on on georgia tv i want to say Maybe seventy nine when they had that uh, 
when they had that very the, the the like a light blue backdrop, you know, and the ring was like almost a green color canvas. I think I remember like I don't remember if it was wrestling one wrestling or wrestling two that was unmasked there, and they did the thing. They all all the baby faces came out with the towel in solidarity to protect his identity, and then right. ushered him back to the yeah. So yeah, so they did teases like this all the time and sometimes they delivered yeah. but in this case the assassin would of course get a new mask and start wearing that but little bear would continue to taunt him by bringing the old mask with him to his matches and oh. hanging it over the ring post oh nice. as a way of taunting uh but as i mentioned this feud lasted well into the fall and you can see a town by town breakdown of the feud between the assassin and stephen little bear on the blog now, in some towns, they did uh, a progression involving both men's specialty matches. Little Bear, of course, had the Indian strap match as his specialty match, while the Assassin's specialty bout was the taped fist match. Uh. And in some towns, they actually had a match where um, it would be a two out of three falls, and the first fall and the second fall would be one of those two steps. So the first fall might be the Indian strap. The second fall might be the taped fist or vice versa. And then if it went to a third fall, a coin flip would determine which wrestler oh, nice. got to choose their go-to step for the third fall. Oh, that's cool. That's a unique little twist. Now, I've also seen some things like this where um, they have a special step for the third fall. But instead of a coin flip, they actually use what we would refer to now as the beat the clock type stipulation, where if the match went huh. to a third fall, whoever won their fall, the fastest would get to choose the stipulation. Oh, that's cool. So that's just proof that nothing, nothing new is actually new. Uh, and this yeah. type, this type of stipulation <laughs> has been around forever, but talking about yep. the feud between the assassin and Steven little bear, as I mentioned, it took place over, much of the year, as did the feud between Ernie Ladd and Ray Candy. So when we look at the biggest feuds for the second quarter only, using our feud length in weeks statistic, the FLW score, we don't get a complete picture. We are only looking at their feud score for this quarter, but the top three feuds, uh, as we mentioned, number three was Eric the Red versus Randy Tyler with an FLW of 3.12. Second was The Assassin versus Stephen Littlebear with a 3.19. And number one was Ernie Ladd versus Ray Candy with a 4.75. So out of this 13-week period, Ladd and Candy were wrestling more than a third of the time. Uh, you mm. know, pretty much every night uh, around the territory. Yeah. So uh, And that feud's only going to get bigger as the year goes on. It's also a rare particularly for the time period, um, feud between two black wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned previously that when the Culkins were running Mississippi, they did have a number of black wrestlers up and down the cards as baby faces, heels, main eventers, mid carters, prelim wrestlers. And there were a lot of uh, matches between black wrestlers there, but something you don't typically see or really Ernie Ladd was the first black wrestler to have a sustained run as a heel as as we talked about previously and as we're going to talk about again later this episode when i do my this month i learned there were black wrestlers that would work as heels for one stint in one territory 
But generally speaking, particularly in the South, they were used as baby faces. So this lad versus candy. Uh, and this also ties into the promotion's shift into focusing more and more on the state of Louisiana. Uh, yeah. th- with the belief uh, on the part of Bill Watts that this would draw well amongst fans in Louisiana who were a more racially diverse lot than the fans in Oklahoma and Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, now, other wrestlers in the territory, besides the ones we've already mentioned, include a couple of heel tag teams in the upper mid-carter section. Neither of them are getting a huge push, but they're sort of uh, in that upper mid-card spot, you know, maybe the semifinal or the third from the top on some cards. But one of the heel teams was uh, Siegfried Stanka teaming up with Kurt Von Hess. And the other one was Jerry Brown teaming up with Bobby Jaggers. Now, both Jerry Brown and Bobby Jaggers are probably considered tag team specialists. So teaming the two of them up seemed pretty natural. So, John, when you think of Bobby Jaggers, who's the first name that comes to mind as a tag team partner of Jaggers? Uh, Chris Colt. Chris Colt. Yes, early. Then... uh, then uh, a, a close second, uh, I think Dutch Mantel. Yeah, with me growing up in that t- the, that time period, I, I recall the Kansas Jayhawks much yeah, more. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Jaggers early in his career actually wrestled as Bobby Dupree and ran with Ron Dupree and Chris Colt and all those guys. And I think Jaggers also uh, as Bobby Main teamed up with Chris Colt. He also teamed up a lot with Randy Tyler. Yep. Although at this time they're both in this territory, but. But Jaggers is the heel and Tyler's face. And now, of course, when you think of Jerry Brown, who's the first tag team partner that comes to mind for him? I think it's uh, Brown Buddy Roberts. Yeah. That's who I think of. Yeah. That's the uh, the Hollywood Blondes. I think his, his next most frequent tag team partner was Ron McFarlane. They teamed up in Florida as the Convicts. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But also, before Buddy Roberts, Brown's regular partner was uh, Dandy Jack Donovan. And it was Donovan getting injured that led to Bill Watts bringing in young Dale Hay, who he had worked with in the AWA, and putting him in the slot. But another tag team partner of Jerry Brown's was Buddy Roberts' real-life brother when they worked for Goulas. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if they worked for Goulas or the USWA, but it was right around the time of the split. But Buddy Roberts' brother whose real name was Lori Hay and who usually wrestled as Sonny Rogers. Here he was billed as Dick Roberts. And so Jerry Brown and Dick Roberts were a different version of the Hollywood Blondes in Tennessee in uh, late 1977. Oh, that's cool. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, The other upper mid-carders include a few wrestlers we've talked about previously. The Avenger, who's Reggie Parks. Bruiser Brody, who made uh, a few brief appearances here. And Skip Young, plus one newcomer who had last been in the territory in, I think, 1962 or 1963. So after 15 years away, the Super Sock (laughs) returns. And that is Jose Lothario. Uh, Now, I don't know about you. Well, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) He has such a... It's wrestling, you know? This is wrestling we're talking about. And his, his origin story. You know about his origin story? Have you heard this story? Of how he got... Uh, uh, that he was boxing? First got into wrestling. And he was... He, 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 was, he was at... 
he's a boxer and he's at he finds himself at a wrestling show one night. You know, in the front row, I'm supposedly, I guess. And one of the, the luchadors comes flying in his direction while he's seated there at ringside. So instead of instead of moving or covering up, Jose takes a swing at the guy, you know, and knocks him out. And of course, this is, this is wrestling, so the promoter, the promoter, of course, sees the whole thing, you know, uh, and convinces Jose that he should he should he should give this whole wrestling thing a shot, and he does. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. It, it's such a fantastic story, but it, it, a lot of these stories in wrestling that the the more fantastic they are, they end up being true sometimes. So who, so who knows? You know, there's at the very least, there's probably some degree of truth to that story. Um, but the, these are the types of things that are hard to verify. Now, when I think of Jose Lothario in wrestling, I identify him most with East Texas. Yep. Uh, he was a mainstay there for many years. But I think uh, a fan growing up in Florida at a certain time would feel very differently about that. And even a fan growing up in uh, California might feel yeah. differently about that because he had a, a big run there as well. And yeah. if you came along later on in Lothario's career, you might identify him more closely with uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling as opposed to Fritz Von, you know, Fritz's territory in East Texas, which at one point included San Antonio until I think 77 or 78. But of course, Lothario had a big run in Southwest and, and of course in Houston when Bosch was running there. And uh, one of his big matches, it was the old teacher versus student feud with Gino Hernandez. Oh, yeah. And oh, of course yeah. they built to a, uh, a, a hair, I forget if it was hair versus hair or hair versus career, but uh, Jose won the match and uh, won Gino's hair. And you actually uh, recommended a match that happened a couple months later in Houston yeah. between Lothario and Gino Hernandez. And this is a steel cage death match. Just, right. I think it's two months after Tully, uh, sorry, after Gino lost his hair. And Gino is 21 years old here. It's, I think, January 1979. But with the short hair, he looks even younger than that. Yeah, he looks like a middle school kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, not even high school. He doesn't look like he's shaved yet. Uh, and and even the yeah. way he even the way he he moves in this match, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, it's like watching like a like a puppy try to walk at some at some, at some, at some, at some point. You know, it's like he's, he's, he's almost there, but he's still like, he still has like, he's, he's walking very, very carefully around the ring at some point. You know, you can tell it's, 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 it's fascinating to see him uh this young he still has that 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 swagger that he always has but there's a little a little trepidation behind it that was really really interesting seeing him here yeah i i enjoyed that match and there's also a match another match from houston which was a lothario teaming up with mil mascaris to take on the funks yes 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 anytime you get to see the uh the funks in action uh, yeah. You should take that. And there's also a uh, a third match uh, again from Houston, and this one was uh, Jose versus the Great Mephisto, and they, these two just literally yeah. punched the shit out of one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the only I think the only high spot was when Mephisto tries to come off the ropes and Lothario slams him, but it has a weird finish. They're fighting on the floor. Lothario rolls back in the ring. Mephisto loads up the boot, uh, and 
Mephisto goes up on the apron while Lothario's in the ring. He kicks Lothario in the midsection, knocking Lothario down. But I guess the, uh, you know, the impact, whatever, knocks Mephisto back off the apron onto the floor where he gets counted out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little I'm unusual not... finish, but I guess it was just a way to, uh, you know, co- find a way to come back for a rematch. Yeah. I love this, this match and the, and the brawling, um, like these guys are not, uh, you guys are not young dudes here, but they keep up this pr- pace pretty well for like 20, 25 minutes, they double, a lot of, a lot of blood and, you know, people kind of get get down and uh, make fun of matches that are just all punching and kicking. But punching and kicking when it's done well, like, is freaking awesome. And it looks yeah. great. And these guys do do that well. And I think, uh, I, I believe this was billed as a Brass Knucks trophy match. So, again, those yeah. are explicitly designed to be more about the punching. Um, so, you know, well, we might not like it now, but the fans there that night wanted to see them punch the shit out of each other and they got everything they asked for and more. Oh, they did. Yeah. And I just, I'd love like going back to that Chino match. I just love the, uh, it's such a, I don't know. Wrestling is just like, sometimes it's just so easy. Like I love the classic, the classic student turning on the teacher mentor angles. Like it's so, it's so good. And I think it was the thing that was sort of based in reality too, where like, I think Gino's the stepfather uh, was who had passed away was a former tag team partner of Jose years earlier. So Jose was sort of acting as like a, you know, like a father figure as well as a mentor. So there's right. all sorts of levels of stuff happening here. It's so good. It's, it's simple but, when, you have a small enough crew that you can take the time to figure out the right story. Uh, And nowadays every promotion has such a bloated roster and such a large number of pushed entities. It's hard to give that attention to each, but back then, you know, uh, you look at the, you know, look at the roster here in 1978 in the, in a three month period of time, there are seven main eventers. And there are 10 upper mid-carders. So at any given time, you just have a few acts. Some of those are tag teams as well. So you really only have a few acts that you need to worry about. When you have this feud, what I always did in my very brief run as Booker for uh, NWA Wildside, the idea was you have these characters that are usually exaggerated versions of, of the, the, the person playing the role. But my thought was always, if you take these two characters and put them in a room together... What's going to happen between them? Uh, Hmm. Based on the personalities and the characters they've developed, you figure out how best they would interact with one another. And that's how you build the feud. But, you know, when you have so many guys being pushed, it's really hard to uh, take the time to give each feud that individual attention. Now, of course, talking about Lothario being a mentor to Gino, I don't think Gino is his most famous student. Probably not. I think that would be old <laughs> HBK, Shawn Michaels. Yeah. Uh, I was yeah. reading uh, Mike Mooneyham's article, uh, which he wrote shortly after Lothario passed away in November 2018. And uh, uh, what Mooneyham said was that after training Shawn Michaels and, and Shawn being ready to start wrestling, Jose called up Bill Watts to try and get Shawn booked in the Mid-South. And Watts agreed to bring him in sight unseen based solely on the word of Lothario. Didn't need eight by tens. Didn't need video. 
Jose's yep. word was enough for the cowboy. And that's a, that's, I have that exact, that exact quote in my notes. That was so impressive. And then that speaks volumes about how respected and, 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 and well-regarded his, his word was for someone like Watts to just, okay, yeah, bring him in. Yeah. So that's, we were talking about Yolanka earlier, John, and how yeah. on at least one occasion he was brought to the ring from a spaceship that descended from above the ring. And the reason why I said that we're going to talk about something similar <laughs> later is because we're going to talk about a unique method of getting wrestlers into the ring uh, in 1964 in Santa Cruz, California, when Jose Lothario mm-hmm. was scheduled to face Ray Stevens in a fence match. They uh, put a fence around the ring and the newspaper advertisement says the wrestlers were going to be deposited in the ring via a pulley. So, yeah. you know, I imagine, you know, uh, sim- uh, sadly similar to how, how Owen Hart, you know, would make some of his entrances, um, you know, but literally like the, I guess the fence just didn't have a door. So they had to hoist the wrestlers up over the ring and then drop them down into it. Yeah. So have you ever heard of anything no. like this or any anything unique with no. the with cage match stipulations? Because I guess, you know, a lot of times they're they're not buying they're just buying the cyclone fence that that you know is rolled yeah. off a spool as opposed yeah. to ones that are already constructed that have doors in them that are used at construction sites or whatever. So yeah. I mean a lot of those a lot of those old matches that you see with the with with the old you know, the cyclone fences, a lot of those, when you see that footage, they're usually joined in progress. So maybe, maybe we already missed the, the pulley action. When yeah. We or, or, I, and I always wondered if perhaps the wrestlers got in the ring first and they built it around and then they would <laughs> just, you know, build, build the cage around them. I'm not really sure, but you know, it reminds me of another unique twist on a cage match. And this is something that they did a few times in Amarillo. Um, we all think that the Texas death match had a set stipulation that it, that they always followed the same exact rule set. But as it turns out, that wasn't always the case because I found some ads that were advertising Texas death matches that were held in steel cages. And the <laughs> slight twist on the rules here was that after the 32nd rest period, if a wrestler was able to escape the cage, that's how they won. Interesting. As opposed to, you know, being unable to answer the bell, I guess after the rest period, um, if one wrestler could get out of the cage before his opponent was able to recover and grab him, then the wrestler who escaped would win the match. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Because yeah, I think the one that we have here, the the the, the Gino uh, Lothario, is a Texas death cage match, but it's just basically a Texas death match. Yeah, that that's the that's norm. In a, in a cage. That's the yeah, norm, yeah. but the, there were some instances in uh, yeah. Western states where they had these unique steps. Now, another interesting yeah. thing about the match between Jose Lothario and Ray Stevens was that it took place on a Monday night, February 10th, 1964. The night before that, Sunday, February 9th, 1964, was one of the most significant events in music and TV history and involved mm-hmm. someone that John mentioned at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> so, John, tell our listeners who might not know what happened on February 9th, 1964. That was the night the Beatles uh, played on Sullivan. 
uh, for the first time, their first U.S. citizen. And I believe something like 40 percent of the population of the U.S. was uh, was tuned into that, which is crazy to think about it's, something like yeah. that happening. It's, it's amazing. Of course, and now with so many different channels, it's impossible, but. Yeah. <laughs> According to George Harrison, I think there was no crime during the, during, during the time we were playing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure a few of the uh, underage girls watching were envisioning uh, crimes of a different sort being you know, played out. Um, but yeah, so the Beatles. Now, Jose Lothario's wife never quite got to the level of the Beatles, but apparently his wife was a singer. And I learned about this from a, an article in the nineteen, the January nineteen sixty nine issue of Wrestling Review, where there's an article about Jose Lothario, and it mentions his wife was a singer. Lovely wife, Martha. Yeah. It also mentions that Jose would spend an hour every morning on the phone with his stockbroker. Yes. <laughs> But we'll 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 post the we'll post uh, some screenshots of the article uh, on Twitter. So be sure to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling and follow John at J O N underscore B O U C H E R. But there's some great pictures of Lothario in action against Johnny Valentine and Sputnik Monroe, among others. There you have Jose Lothario working his way up the cards in Leroy McGurk's territory in the spring of 1978 after a 15 plus year absence from the territory. Now, as the year progresses, he will move up to main event status. But for now, he's uh, slotted as an upper mid-carder based on our spot ratings as he's getting pushed up the cards. He comes, I think, in the middle of the quarter. So he is slowly working his way back up the cards and later in the year will become a main eventer. Now, further down the cards are the mid-carders and they include Rick McGraw, Ali Bay, the Mongol. Now, John, hmm. this Mongol, I believe, was Phil Mercado, uh, but he's one of at least three wrestlers that used the Mongol gimmick in this territory at various times. Oh, geez. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Mark Starr used it. Uh, this was not uh, the WCW guy from the 90s. This was Ricky Starr's brother. But what's okay. interesting is he worked as the Mongol, the Mongol, but in some cases, he's advertised as the mongrel. So I'm wondering <laughs> if all along he was supposed to be the mongrel and they got it wrong. Yeah. Huh. And then I think uh, at one point, Gene Lewis played a mongrel. Uh, yeah, there's just, there are many mongrels. Then, of course, you had uh, Volkov and uh, Newton Tatry as Beepo and Guido mongrel. So and later, Bill Eadie as a solo. Right. Yeah. So there are there were a multitude of Mongols in yes. wrestling, and many of them were mongrels. Yes, the one I always think of too. I think my my the the, the one when I think of uh, El Mongol, I think of uh, the guy who wrestled in Georgia, sixties and seventies. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, I think Raul Palusa. Molina. Is that Raul Molina or is that a different guy? Who oh, didn't I think we talked about him last month. Huh. That was he's the guy uh, who always he has the he has the little thing of hair going yeah, up. Yeah, he was he was he, Gunga, like he was he was part of Gunga Din and Kublai Khan here Kublai in nineteen seventy four. 
Oh, that's, I'm oh, pulling yeah, it up. Yeah. And he always looks like, kind of has like a look on his face like he's in pain. That's the guy I'm thinking of. Yeah, but he has that tuft of hair like Killer Khan had. Yep, 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 yep. Okay. Doing these other Mongols. That yeah, I many, there was one in World Class, too, that I think was Gene, that was Gene Lewis. Yeah. Yes, I think that's correct. Yeah, many, many Mongols all over yeah, the place. There's, and there's also a lot of killers. On, like, there's a lot of killers in yeah. wrestling, too. Yeah. In fact, we're going to talk oh, yes, about yes. another wrestler who was here as a mid-carder, and that's Killer Brooks. Mm-hmm. Now, Brooks had been here previously in 1975, but he was billed at the time as Crazy Brooks. And I'm assuming that's because at the time, Killer Call Cox was one of the top stars here. Huh. So to avoid confusion, they billed him as Crazy Brooks. But... In the second quarter of 1978, there are no cocks whatsoever to be found in this territory. <laughs> so Tim Brooks oh, that's, that's good. was free that's to be good. billed as Killer Brooks. Now, Timothy Paul Brooks was born on December 4th, 1947 in Waxahachie, Texas. John, mm-hmm. name another wrestler yeah. born in Waxahachie. Dick Murdoch, baby. Yes. And not only are they both from Waxahachie, they are cousins. Yeah, they're related. Yes, I believe. They grew up wrestling in the backyard together. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Brooks's father or mother, but they were uh, kin to Murdoch's father, who was Frank Murdoch. Yep. yep. Now, before turning pro, Killer Brooks served in the Army, where he was yeah. uh, an MP. He was military police, which is hilarious yeah, seeing what Killer Brooks looked like for most of his wrestling career. I would be scared shitless. Yeah. If uh, <laughs> if the if the MPs showed up and Killer Brooks looked like that, yeah, it's and I guess he was just I guess he was just coming home for a, a family funeral I guess in Amarillo and Murdoch was like, hey, why don't you stick around and drink beer and come see some wrestling with me? Yeah, uh, took him know, on Dick the road. Murdoch asked you to, yeah, if Dick, Dick Murdoch asked you to have some beer and go see some wrestling, you probably you probably do exactly that, and that turned into. A few weeks, uh, you know, Brooks is like a bigger guy and because he's related to Murdoch. Some of the guys start showing him, you know, some stuff in the ring. And apparently they're one night the funks needed a, a 15th guy for a 15 person battle royal because someone hurt or no showed or whatever. And Terry Funk and Dick Murdoch convince Brooks to get in the ring and give it a go. And again, if Dick Murdoch and Terry Funk strongly suggest, strongly suggest something like this to you, you're probably going to go ahead and go along with their yeah. suggestions. Uh, <laughs> and that's how his career started, although he spent yeah. his formative years in Ohio and Michigan, even though he's born in Texas and, and probably most associated with all the various Texas promotions. He um, really learned the ropes in Ohio and Michigan, wrestling for the Sheik, as well as some of the other promotions based in the Northeast, Toronto, Cleveland, and Buffalo. I think he even did some WWF TV tapings. Yeah. Um, but It's interesting. Go ahead. Him, like with the Sheik, I was reading about this, and I wasn't really aware of this, but like when they, he first came in to Detroit, um, he didn't go in as a killer, killer Brooks with the, you know, he, he came in as like sort of like a clean cut, you know, sort of like a prelim guy, you know, maybe mid, maybe mid card guy. Um, but apparently it's the Sheik saw something in him that he liked and just took him off TV and house shows, um, had him take a couple months off, had him grow out his hair, get the scraggly crazy hair and his beard. And he came back with a leather jacket and the, 
like the hockey guard thing on his arm uh, and just sort of reinvented him and became, you know, trans, you know, became went from Tim Brooks to Killer Brooks there. Uh, and he's just perfect, uh, made for being a heel in Detroit in the early 70s with that look. He looked like a like a criminal biker guy. His hair's a mess. He, he would smoke those like uh, those cigarillos, they call them. And yeah. it just looks like he's smoking a joint on the way to the ring sometimes. He just looks like a maniac. This was around badass, the time when, you know? when Hell's Angels were there, Colton Dupree. So he you know, probably did <laughs> well with that crowd as yeah. well. But you've and got a like, match on the YouTube from Cincinnati. So that would have been around this time where Brooks faces Haystack Calhoun. Now, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you call him Haystack or Haystacks? I usually call him Haystacks. But I've heard both. Sometimes I just call him the big stacker, as Vince McMahon used to call him on commentaries. I always, in uh, in either 67 or 68, Haystack and Jack Briscoe were teaming up for McGurk a lot. And I, in my head, I always call them the, the Jack and Stack connection. <laughs> That's nice. I like that. Yeah, that would have been Pretty a great good. thing. But so, yeah, so you got to match with him against uh, either one Haystack or multiple Haystacks. But you also have a match from Portland with Brooks versus Buddy Rose. So not not only did we get to watch a Funks match earlier, but now we get to watch a Buddy Rose match. So this is just heaven, heaven on YouTube. But also a match from Fort Worth, Texas against David Von Erich. And this is a hair versus car match. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but let's just say the loser of this match doesn't take it very well. No, no, no. Uh, this is a, yeah, I, lo- I love the end of this. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, but and you also will we'll post an article from the Irving Daily News from Irving, Texas. This is a neat little story. It's like a, a hometown boy, not quite makes good, but, you know, has an interesting career. Um, yeah. And it's written, you know, while he's still wrestling up in uh, in Ohio and Michigan. I think he came in to visit some family or whatever. So the um, he had gone, he grew up in Waxahachie, but he went to high school in Irving. So this is just, you know, the former, you know, nice little boy from Irving High School named Timothy Brooks is now, you know, a scraggly, long-haired wrestler named Killer Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like he's it's like Killer Brooks on Road to Fame and Wrestling. And he's sitting there with like a little kid with a letterman's jacket on. And he's got a Band-Aid over his head. And, but, he, but he looks happy and smiling. Yeah. It's very, yeah. Kind of an Brooks, adorable photo. Brooks passed away in June 2020. Uh, not long after the the COVID pandemic began, I, he he was already in uh, deteriorating health, and I think apparently um, everything you know the the domino effect of uh, what was going on with with COVID probably uh, accelerated things. Uh, but there's a nice write up by Greg Oliver on Slam Wrestling uh, shortly after he passed away. One one thing I didn't know about. And that Brooks didn't know about for many years was that he had a daughter that was a wrestler. Yeah. Her name was, I believe it was Tanya Delaroche. And I think she wrestled as terrific Tanya. Uh, And she was the, she's a second generation star on her mother's side. Her mother was Sandy Partlow, who also wrestled as Princess Partlow. And the article said that Sandy didn't tell her daughter who her father was uh, until long after, um, the, her wrestling career. She wrestled, I think, the late '80s and early '90s, mostly in the Midwest. Um, but yeah. thankfully, at some point after all that, uh, they were able to connect, and, and Tim did get to know his daughter. So that was yeah. nice. That was very, 
it was a very sweet story. Yeah, and there's like there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of stuff about him and, and, and Piper and the drugs over the years and da, 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 all the wild partying. And then it gets to like the, the, the sad stuff where it's like, oh, God, they're going to take his kids away and they've got to go to family court. But he's it's, it's nice that he's able to manage to clean himself up and get his get his life together. And yeah, get, he, get he his checked into and, a rehab that I believe was through the military. Yeah. Uh, and he did and 30 so days. And the judge, I guess, put him and his uh, either wife or ex-wife uh, at the time, but the mother of, of their other kids, uh, said, you two go to a room, and uh, if you want to reconcile, uh, you'll regain custody. If not, you won't. And they said, yeah. and they talked to that, and they said, yes, we, we want to give this a try for our children. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, you know, we, again, on this podcast, we like to talk about the, the happier endings in in pro wrestling and not necessarily the dark side of the ring so as much parting as killer brooks did during his life it is good to know that at some point later on he did uh wake up and straighten up and uh hopefully you know was able to live out uh his remaining days in a much better in a much better place but he, this is someone uh who worked for pretty much every promotion that ever existed in the state of texas from Amarillo to East Texas to Southwest yeah. to Texas All Star, uh, he even worked, I think, you know, Global and Big D. Um, and the same thing goes with Lothario. So many people associate him with Texas. And another newcomer to the territory this quarter, who mostly worked in the prelims this time around, is also strongly associated with Texas, and that is Gary Young. Or just Gary Young, baby. Yeah. Gorgeous Gary. We mentioned yeah. in a previous episode that both Gary and Lynn Denton, the grappler, were trained by a wrestler known as Joe Pizza, who almost certainly <laughs> wasn't related to Joey Abs. <laughs> now, Denton... It's, I have a yeah. funny... Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. Fun, no, if no, you have sorry. a funny Joe Pizza story, please. It, it's, not a, it's not a funny Joe Pizza story, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny Gary Young story that started out not being funny. Um... Real name, Gary Lee Harrington, right? Uh, so in, in trying to find out some info about Gary's pre-wrestling life, I didn't find it, anything that, that, that interesting. Just some, just some high school football stuff. You know? Fortunately uh, for Gary, there are several criminals from Texas that have the same name as him. Uh, one was accused of murder. Uh, and there's another one that was involved a lot of theft and DUI type stuff. Uh, and he even has the same middle initial as Gary. So before I realized there, these were three different Garys, I go through this whole range of emotions. Like, I've, like Al, I've got to tell Al about this. I can't keep this a secret. So we've got to figure out a new guy uh, to talk about. We don't want to talk about the guy who, who allegedly starved his child to death on our show. We're not, we can't do that. You know, a, a boat thief or whatever, we could talk about that guy. That's fine. I don't want to talk about a, a, a murderer on the show. Um, but then I found something about our Gary Lee Harrington, a, a joyful wedding announcement where, where Gary is positively identified as a professional wrestler and also listed him as graduating from Northbrook High School, also the alma mater of Gino Hernandez, uh, in 1977. So that you can estimate his birth year at around 1959 or so. Uh, and then in the wedding announcement although not super interesting, was very helpful because it ruled out these other two criminal Garys 
because their ages do not line up with our non-criminal Gary. Um, so I was so relieved because I I I I I I like Gary Young so much to 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 to, to find he was not a criminal or at least not one of these types of criminals. So yeah, that well, that's a, that was such know, a weight off. That's the thing <sighs> when you do these Google searches or newspaper searches is you know you really need to take the extra step of verifying the location, the date of birth, so on and so forth, oh, yeah. because there are so many sound alikes. Like doing a Google search for Terry Taylor or Mike Davis, you know, or a newspaper search Indeed. yields a lot of false positives. Um, speaking of names and real names, uh, last month, remember you talked about uh, Archie Goldie's quote unquote son, Jeff Goldie, yeah. who wasn't his son, but who was Tommy Lane from the Rock and Roll RPMs. Do you know what Tommy Lane's real name is? Oh, isn't it Tommy Lee Jones? Yes. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> so again, you know, you know, so yes, no, Jeff Gouldy, the Mongolian Stomper's son, did not become a famous actor and star of The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. But it, it's easy how you could, you know, go down that rabbit hole and make those mistakes. So, yeah, so Gary Young, the non-murderer version. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I find it interesting that Gorgeous Gary Young went to the same high school as gorgeous Gino Hernandez. Yeah. That's uh, pretty interesting. But uh, he trained with Lynn Denton by Joe Pizza. Now, Denton had been here wrestling for McGurk over the winter, but left at the end of March, just a couple of weeks before Gary started here. And Gary had been wrestling in Vancouver over the winter, which sounds pretty dreadful. And I'm not just mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not just talking about weather, but if you look at the crew in Vancouver in the uh, early months of 1978, it is Gene Kaniski, Bobby Bass, Jake Roberts, and that's about it. Mm. So uh, a rough crew, rough weather. So I'm sure he was glad to be able to come to the uh, southern half of the United States as the winter turned to spring. Uh, aside from all the Texas territories uh, that both Gary and Killer Brooks wrestled for, non-Texas territories that Gary worked in over the years included Central States, Mid-Atlantic, here, and in the late 80s, uh, he worked for the USWA, where he teamed with a young man named Cactus Jack very early mm-hmm. in Jack's career. And I think that's something a lot of our listeners probably know Gary Young best for, was his team with Cactus Jack in the USWA in the late 1980s but we've got some older youtube footage of uh not necessarily older yes older uh against a variety of opponents we've got him from mid-atlantic tv against harley race we have him versus chavo guerrero and we have him versus chris adams so the harley race match is a pretty typical world champion tv match where gary gets his shine although in this case he doesn't get much of a later comeback. He gets his initial shine, but once Harley takes over, he pretty much slowly and methodically beats the shit out of Gary Young. <laughs> Gary, yeah, he spends a lot of time on the uh, on the on the floor of the uh, middle yeah, of the TV th- studio. Throws Gary to the floor, and then <laughs> repeatedly, when Gary tries to get back in, he won't let him in. Uh, and then at one point, no. he follows him to the floor, and then Gary Young gets back up on the apron, and Harley suplexes him into the ring, and then finishes him off. So it's yeah. You know, Gary does get that early shine, but typically uh, in in this day that the the TV guys would get two, they'd get a comeback as well. And Gary didn't get it here. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, what about the other two matches? 
Gary Young, I, I love the Gary Young versus Chavo match uh, from UWF TV. Um, it's a really cool. I think it's a babyface versus babyface match. Um, it's probably the closest match on on all the matches from this month, maybe ever that I've that I've, that I've chosen for us. That's fast paced and, and really close to almost like the modern style of wrestling. Um, fast paced, trading shoulder tackles, arm drags, drop kicks. Chavo is like monkey flipping onto Gary. He does like a bridge out of it. You know, Chavo wins with a, a quick belly to back suplex. It's like a four minute match, um, but it's just a great, a great little TV match. Um, I love that. Um, and the Chris Adams, uh, Gary Young match from World Class, uh, probably '89. That's this is just a great. Gary's great, the great heel here, managed by Akbar. Um, I think one of my favorite spots in the match is a cool spot where Adams is on. Uh, the apron holding the top rope outside of the ring. Uh, Gary Young's in the ring and attempting to sort of, you know, you do the thing where you pull, yank the ropes and catapult the guy back in the ring. Um, Adams manages to sort of like reverse it and he manages to catapult Gary Young over the top rope and onto the, onto the arena floor, which is like a, I thought that was a really cool spot. And after that, Adams dives through the top and second rope, which is a, a cool way to, you don't see that very often. That totally took me by surprise, and Adams pile drives Gary on the floor, but then out comes Cactus Jack Manson with the, the cast, and he's, everything evolves into chaos, and Mark Lorenz sends us to a, a commercial break. But those are both really, really fun. I think both Chavo and Chris Adams were very unique wrestlers for their time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Chavo much more so, but even Chris Adams did did things differently than most wrestlers in the mid to late eighties did them. Yeah. Um, now Gary is still alive these days. And for many years, he has been the manager of a Chili's in North little rock, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been to little rock a couple of times on research trips. I never got to head over that way, but I've been told that he's often there during the day. And as long as you're not, you know, totally insane that he, you know, will take the time to sit down (laughs) with you and talk. That's the second quarter of 1978 in Leora McGurk's territory. Uh, the one addendum I do want to add, they did add a new singles title during the quarter, and this was, uh, they reinstated the Louisiana heavyweight title, which had been dormant for, I think, about eight years by this point. They ran a one-night tournament in Baton Rouge, and the Assassin came out on top. Now, the previous quarter, they had reintroduced the Louisiana tag team titles. So it's clear they're putting more of an emphasis on the state of Louisiana. And recall in 1978, they're only running one town in Mississippi at this time, and that's Jackson. Uh, In October of 77 is when the Culkins, George and his son Gil, split away from Leroy McGurk and started running their own territory in all the Mississippi towns, plus a few that they acquired from uh, either Gulf Coast or Fuller uh, because Fuller bought Gulf Coast but didn't want to run Mississippi. So the Culkins added those towns. But what's interesting is they're running head-to-head in Jackson, Mississippi on Wednesday nights. And the venues are about four and a half miles apart from one another. And the local promoter for Watts' shows was Jack Curtis Jr., who was George's... uh, I never get this right, but stepbrother or something like, but they're related. Yeah. And they're now running opposition to one another 
four and a half miles apart in Jackson, <laughs> Mississippi. And this brings to mind a story I might have told on this podcast before, but it's so funny that I'm going to tell it again. Or maybe I didn't tell it and this is the first time. But in the summer of 1998, I was working for Burt Prentice's Music City Wrestling. And he was running a show uh, at a uh, baseball field in Gallatin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. And I'm riding to the show with Bill Dundee. In, uh, in Bill Dundee's Cadillac with his name, you know, plastered on the side of it, that whole, that whole deal. And we're oh, stopped wow. at a light and there's this guy walking on the sidewalk and he's carrying a gym bag and he looks over and sees Dundee's car and he you know, starts waving and motioning to roll down the window. So of course we, you know, Bill figures, all right, it's just a fan who wants to say hi. I'm stopped at a light. I don't want to be terribly rude. So we'll lower the window a crack. I'll say hi and move on. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that while Burt Prentice was running the football field or the baseball field in Gallatin, the regular outlaw promotion was running its weekly show literally right across the street. And this person uh, who sees Bill says, hey, superstar, I think we're on the same show together. Can you give me a ride? And Dundee looks at him and looks him up and down and says, I don't think so, pal, and rolls up the window. And uh, <laughs> But yeah, this guy was working the outlaw show and... I guess he was walking to the show as one does. I've, I've never heard of that. I think I'm trying to think the closest I've, I've ever worked to my home. I think one point, at one point there was a show at a bowling alley, maybe two and a half miles from where I was living in Asheville, North Carolina. I don't think I could walk that, but uh, you know, generally speaking, you're not going to be close enough to home to walk, but yes, this wrestler working in the outlaw show was walking, carrying his, uh, his uh, (laughs) gear to the show and asked Bill Dundee for a ride in the middle of traffic on a Wednesday evening. I have a couple of follow-up questions. If you don't mind, go right ahead. Um, What is the inside of Bill Dundee's car? Like, Oh gosh, this was this was so long ago. I, it was immaculate. I I do remember he took oh, very good care nothing, of, nothing of not okay. just the exterior but interior. But no, there's no there's there was like a hot tub in it. If that's where what you're asking, yeah, nothing. That's like an eight track play or something cool. You know, just like just like okay, cool. No, and, uh, whatever whatever was the uh, musical you know uh, choice in in 1998 was what he had in his car. Gotcha. CD changer probably. Probably yeah, probably. Maybe tape. And you, how much taller are you than Bill Dundee? You must tower over him because you're very tall. I'm not very tall. I'm five ten. You're five uh, ten. Yeah, I might have been five eleven at one point. Yeah, I'm not that particularly oh. tall. Um, yeah, it's funny. Guys like Bill, they know how to make themselves look bigger. Which sounds weird. I mean, it's hard when you're standing side by side with someone who's six two. You can't, you know, pretend. But yeah. uh, much in the same way that Bruiser Brody managed to run, make it look like he was running as fast as he can, yet could never catch up to Abdullah the Butcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of shorter wrestlers, especially in that era, understood ways the ways to alter their stance in such a way that you couldn't notice the size difference. As much as if uh, a five, you know, seven guy is standing next to a six, two guy. Uh, So, you know, I really, when I think of Bill, 
I don't think of him as, oh my God, he's so short. I mean, yes, you notice, yeah, I'm, I'm looking down at him, but you, you don't notice it as much. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so there you go. So uh, you're you're keen on wrestlers' heights, John. Let's see how good yeah. you are with other trivial matters oh, as we play our new monthly feature, which we debuted a couple of months ago when John foolishly bought me Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling yeah. Trivia Game on eBay, and and for some reason, a surprise that I'm now going to uh, quiz him every single month, but. John, are you ready to play Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia? I'm ready, baby. It's Gordon Soley's Trivia. John Boucher is playing Gordon Soley's Trivia. All right. Ding, ding. Now, now it's playing. Jeez, no, hold on one second. Now it's playing every other. Now it's playing every other sound effect I have on my phone. This is a big budget production. This charting the territories podcast. Let me tell you, we spare no expense. Now I think Google's going to sue me over a misuse of their ching sound effect. Okay. Unauthorized chinging going on. Unauthorized chinging. Yeah. Yes. All right. Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. I have, uh, I think you're going to do well on this one. Okay. What country does Tony Gurria hail from? I believe it's from New Zealand. Correct. Ah, I should have used the cha-ching. That's what I'll use it for. Well, 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 I'll get that all queued up. I, I, I closed the app already. Okay. Yes. Correct. All right. True or false? Cecil B. De Mornay was the first recognized wrestling manager in the late 30s. I'm just going to go with false. Yeah, that's false. All right, so two for two. <laughs> See if you can go for all okay, four. Cool. Name the wrestling wow. show seen on NBC on Saturday nights. That would be Saturday night's main event. Cha-ching, three for three. Okay. And now... okay. Here's a softball for the fourth and final question this month on John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Who held the AWA World Heavyweight title from 1960 to 1965 when he lost it to Mad Dog Vashon? That'd be Laverne Gagne. <laughs> uh, no, it's not Laverne oh, Gagne. I'm going to. Vern, Vern Gagne. Yes, Vern Gagne. That is correct. So there you go, John. Has gone four for four on Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. Good job. Cha-ching, baby. Yeah. Cha-ching, baby. Cha-ching, cha-ching all around. So moving on, I now want to talk about the uh, latest Stats 101 blog post that I made on the blog earlier this month. And uh, if you'll recall, listeners, we've I've sort of re- formatted stats 101 it used to be a podcast a, a little micro podcast it's now going to be a blog post where most every month we're going to look at a wrestler's run in a territory but specifically in a place and time that most people don't associate that wrestler with for example last month we looked at bob Backlund's run in amarillo and this month we're going to look at bobby shane's run in gulf coast and of course gulf coast 
is considered by many to be the lost territory because there's so little info out there. But we, I have uh, got a good bit of house show records and advertisements and lineups from the territory, and I was able to construct a look at Bobby Shane's run in 1971. And you can see that on the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. He was a main eventer. He was, as a matter of fact, he had the highest spot rating of all the wrestlers in Gulf Coast when he was there in early 1971, including Cowboy Bob Kelly. He had had a decent run in Florida and a big run in Georgia, but his really big run in Florida happened after this. So he is still a star on the rise. But here in Gulf Coast, he was treated like a king, which, of course, was, you know, his gimmick. He was the king of wrestling, Bobby Sheen. He was here with his wife, uh, Cherie, who was his valet, who uh, worked as his valet in many places, uh, including here. And he had some big feuds with Cowboy Bob Kelly, with Ken Lucas, and he also brought Lee Fields out of retirement for a couple of matches that drew in excess of 8,000 fans to the Municipal Auditorium in Mobile, Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And, and it's, from what you were saying, they, they basically outgrew the, what was it, the armory? Yeah. They, they were, were running, running the Fort Whiting Armory. Um, I don't have, I actually, the armory is still uh, in existence. And I actually emailed them asking if they could huh. tell me what their capacity was in the 1970s. I never got an answer from them. But, they seem they were running the armory weekly and they moved to the municipal auditorium in early 1971. I did uh, communicate with a fan on Facebook who went to the venue in the early 70s. His name is Chuck Browning. And he said that the baseline attendance uh, for the municipal auditorium was, he said 3,000 to 6,000. I'm going to guess that it's more like 3,000 to 4,000, 4,500 was the typical attendance so we could speculate that the armory couldn't hold 3,000 or maybe it held exactly 3,000 and they knew that they could get more some weeks it's it's funny and it's it's unfair of me to do so but when I, I think of you know territories like like gulf coast it's like i don't i don't normally associate them with numbers like this well <laughs> and, the other you know without the whole story it's really hard you know it's really hard to say. Obviously, they drew really well in Mobile. Their other big town yep. was Pensacola. Aside from that, there aren't a lot of big towns. Uh, and when I say big, I mean population-wise in the early 70s. Um, yep. They're running Laurel, Mississippi. They're running Hattiesburg, Mississippi. They're running Panama City, Florida. They're running Dothan. Dothan's probably their third biggest town. Uh, they're running Gulfport, Mississippi, because Biloxi, Biloxi was a speck. Biloxi wasn't much of anything until the casinos came in the nineties. Um, huh. So, you know, maybe they're maybe in these towns, they're drawing between a thousand and 2000, maybe even slightly more than that. I don't know. So when you add up all the attendance, it's certainly nothing like the WWWF or mid Atlantic or any place like that. But mobile in early 1971, when Bobby Shane was there, they had, I believe two houses above 9,000 and, uh, and a third house above 8,000. It's interesting too. I, I, I uh, you go into some of the blogs, how, you know, Shane 
would have different feuds in the different, you know, like Dick Dick Dunn and Dothan, uh, Ken Lucas and Pensacola, Bobby Fields and Hattiesburg, Cowboy Bob Kelly and Mobile. So it's really interesting, like having that feud, you know, the feuds not work their way through the entire territory that and, takes place. Yeah, I believe you know, in a singular or maybe two markets. I, I believe that was the norm for Gulf Coast. Uh, I think you just have, you know, because they're running multiple shows per night, Cowboy Bob Kelly can't work them all. Um, I also think yeah. at one point, I think more as you get into 73 or 74, similar to what Goulas was doing in 75 and 76, there's almost two separate territories within the territory. There's an eastern leg and a western leg. And for the most part, guys stick to one. Gotcha. Um, and that's one of the things that, that Goulas did as you, as you get into 75 and 76 and early 77, Lawler and, and Dundee and all of them are mostly working Memphis, Evansville, Louisville, et cetera. Whereas, um, Chief Thundercloud, uh, Dennis Hall, George Goulas, et cetera, are working Nashville, Birmingham, Chattanooga. There's almost two separate territories within a territory. But the other thing to think about is, if most territories are centered around one or two homesteading baby faces feuding, you know, fending off a rotating cast of rogue heels in Gulf Coast, they had Dunn and Lucas and Cowboy Bob Kelly and Mike Boyette and, and Frank Dalton. They had more than a couple yeah. of homesteading top baby faces. So because of mm -hmm. that, they would just sort of assign, you know, them to different towns and they probably rotated it over time. Um, you know, Kelly wouldn't, you know, wouldn't always work the same towns. Um, Mobile and Pensacola were the A towns, and those are usually the whole crew is working those shows. But the other ones like Hattiesburg and Laurel and Panama City and Gulfport and Pascagoula, uh, it's just, you know, a, a babyface will come in and have a six month run where he faces a couple of different heels, and then they probably rotate him out. So again, so many people think there was a formula to their territories that it was always done this way. And part of what we're doing here at Charting the Territories is showing you that different territories at different times had a different MO, a different modus operandi in how they operated. And, and you can literally look at the house show listings for all of Bobby Shane's opponents and get proof of that. It's another interesting thing about the Gulf Coast is um that sort of is unique to them or, or unlike a lot of other territories, they have, uh, you know, they had their singles title and, 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 and tag titles for the territory, but also, you know, like state and city titles, you know, like there's like a, you know, the, the city, yeah, the city of Hattiesburg yeah. tag team. And, yeah. you know, they didn't have the belts. Pensacola title. You know? Do you know what they had instead of belts, John? I don't know. The trophy? No, they had jackets. Oh, that's cool, man. Wow. That's kind of cool. That, yes, that is very cool. And I don't know this for a fact, but I read one newspaper article where apparently if the same wrestler, same team was able to simultaneously hold a certain number of city jackets... Like if they had the city of Laurel and Hattiesburg and Mobile, if they had all three of those jackets, they got like a cash bonus. Huh. That's, uh, that's so cool. So these are and just, again, wrestling... this is, yeah, these are the things that you never have heard of before that yeah. the territories operate. But also going back to each town having its own different 
feuds and top baby faces, Gulf Coast, similar to Goulas, was running multiple live TVs every week. It wasn't just one TV taping that got bicycled around the territory. They were doing a live TV in Mobile and Pensacola and probably Gulfport and Biloxi and in and, and all the different markets. So that allows them to have Shane feuding with different guys in different towns because they, they're all you know set up by a different TV taping. Yeah, it's like wrestling titles being what they are like. For us, from from a historical perspective, they're kind of a headache to deal with as far as like trying to figure out their lineage or whatever. But as a fan, it's got to be really cool to have, you know, if you live in Pensacola, you have the Pensacola, yeah, you know, the Pensacola jacket, and it's being defended every week. It's, that's got to be so awesome as a fan. And, that, you know? and you know, again, for the territories that ran multiple towns, because they can't have the Gulf Coast heavyweight champion every week. This way, you know, you have something. The whole idea of drawing fans to a wrestling match is to have something at stake. Whether it's hair versus hair, hair versus car, you know, loser leave town. A title is a very simple way to create stakes for a match. Yep. Yeah. So check that out on the blog and learn a lot, a little bit more about Bobby Shane in 1971. And as I mentioned, uh, I want to thank Chuck Browning. Uh, for reaching out on Facebook and giving us a little more info about attendance. We love hearing from listeners, even when they're telling us we got something wrong. And we had one one oh, yes, such instance this, this past month. Um, one eagle-eyed listener pointed out a faux pas I made when we were talking about Frank Goodish's college football days. I mistakenly said he played for the University of Iowa. Turns out, John, he played at Iowa State. And of course, there's a big difference, especially if you're from the area or went to one of those two schools. So yeah. I want to thank the uh, Twitter account whose name is the History of Rasslin and Racine and Kenosha. Um, so they're covering Wisconsin. Uh, be sure to give them a follow if you're interested in that at yeah, R-A-S-S-L-R-A-C-I-N-E at Rassel Racine. So, yeah, I, you know, we get things wrong. It's going to happen. It'll happen again, I'm sure. Yep. And uh, yeah, follow those guys. Those guys are a, a great a great Twitter account. Follow yeah, he's been putting up some really time. old clippings, too, from uh, some, yep, some shows in uh, Wisconsin. So next month on the podcast, John, we're going to go back to 1966 and look Morning. at the third quarter of 1966 in the Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma slash Louisiana territory. Now, the big story is a babyface versus babyface title feud where Danny Hodge is defending the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title against a young man just entering his second year as a pro who was destined for future greatness. We also have a battleship, a couple of medics, a Kozak brother, a cowboy, and the father of a future cowboy, who's also the grandfather of a future legend killer. Ah. Our monthly Stats 101 feature will take a look at Ronnie Garvin and his run in a territory we don't often associate him with. And we're going to talk about a couple of under-the-radar books that have been released recently. Both of them are works of fiction set in the wild and woolly world of professional wrestling. So, John, next month we're going to book a review of a couple of books. That's exciting. Yeah. Before we sign off this month, though, it's time for both John and I to name one new thing we learned this month. So, John, 
What did you learn this month? So I was, I was reading about Big Bill Miller a couple of weeks ago, Doctor Doctor Big Bill Miller. Uh, some most fans of that that era are probably are probably aware that he was a a veterinarian. His his a uh, specialty being performing autopsies on animals at the Ohio State Agricultural Lab. Um, later on in his life, he works for the the federal government doing uh, like poultry, meat, and large animal inspection. And uh, while on this job, he was a uh, tripped by a high pressure hose and fractured his back so he had to get, he had to get back surgery um and while on, in surgery he lost a lot of blood uh apparently and and this month i learned that dr big bill miller almost died on the operating table because of blood loss because he was a jehovah's witness Ooh. And his faith in that in that particular denomination, you know, pre, would preclude one from getting a blood transfusion. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, I mean, not not funny, haha. But when I when I, when I was re, I was reading that story, I was actually researching a a, a Don Leo Jonathan story. So you have Don Leo Jonathan, the, the Mormon giant, and then you have a big. Bill Miller, the Je, Jehovian the Je, giant. The Jehovan I so. giant, I guess. Yeah, but I thought that was interesting. Those two, those two guys of uh, hmm. being in the yeah, I had no idea he was a Jehovah's Witness. You know, I thought he had Big Bill Miller. I thought he'd be a nice, you know, just a nice, you know, like a um, Protestant guy or something. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if his brother uh, Danny Miller was also a Jehovah Witness. Uh, if huh? it was a family thing or if it was just something Bill chose, we'll have to look into that. Yeah. But as for me, uh, earlier this month on the podcast, we were talking about Ernie Ladd as. Uh, Perhaps the first black wrestler to have a sustained, you know, to regularly work as a heel over various territories for a long period of time. A few months ago, John, we were, I was speculating on who was the first black wrestler to work as a heel in the South. And at the time, I, the earliest mention I had seen was in 1971 when Thunderbolt Patterson worked as a heel in East Texas, where he was King Thunderbolt Patterson. Well, this month, I learned that two years prior to that, a black wrestler, also in East Texas, worked as a heel. Uh, his gimmick was that he was a former boxer from Harlem, New York, and he was billed as the Harlem hangman, Buster Lloyd. John, do you know Buster Lloyd's much more well-known ring name? Off the top of my head, no. No, I don't. All right. Buster Lloyd is the future Rufus R. Freight Train Jones. Wow. And early in his career, he wrestled as Buster Lloyd. Uh, he actually got into wrestling. He was, uh, this is according to Burhead, uh, but Burhead met Rufus in New York. Uh, and I believe both of them were actually boxing. I think they somehow ended up getting hooked up with Tony Santos uh, in Boston. And that's how Rufus got trained. He started his career, I believe, in Canada or maybe for Santos in the Northeast. Uh, but when he came down to wrestle in East Texas in 1969, they already had Sonny King there as a babyface. Um, Thunderbolt was going to come in as a babyface. Ernie Ladd was making occasional appearances as a babyface. So I guess uh, they felt that they might have had too many 
black baby faces, plus also perhaps Buster's look at the time was more of a fitting of a heel and his background being from New York. But they say he would do interviews on TV where he'd say he was better than these Texas wrestlers because he was a street fighter from New York. Right. So, and again, wow. the question is when I say who the first black wrestler to work as a heel in the South was, does Texas count as the South? I and mean, of course it does, but at the same time, I'm more thinking about the segregated South. And Texas in 1969 was a much better place for black people. Uh, if you'll recall, when we talked about Ernie Ladd uh, and his leading to the boycott of the AFL All-Star Game in New Orleans, at the last minute, yeah. they arranged to relocate that game to Houston. And this was 64 yep. or 65 because it was a much friendlier uh, place for black people. So by that, you know, it's not the same as a black wrestler being a heel in Louisiana or Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, again, to our listeners, if you have any uh, knowledge of black wrestlers in the Southeast, so again, not Florida, but let's say uh, Georgia, uh, even up through the mid-Atlantic states, the Carolinas or Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, who the first wrestler was that worked as a heel, uh, black wrestler as a heel, let us know and we will uh, perhaps bring it up on a future episode of this podcast. But that Indeed. does it for this episode. So uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can find me at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. You can also follow my second Twitter account, Al Getz Baseball. I am, mm -hmm. as we're recording this, I am halfway through my journey to visit all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums in the 2022 season. Check that out. And also don't forget payhip.com. That's P-A-Y-H-I-P.com slash charting the territories to see our PDF almanacs. Last month, we talked about the uh, Vancouver Wrestling Almanac, and we have several others available uh, for download where you can download them for free or name your own price, and that's at payhip.com slash charting the territory. So, John, what can our listeners, uh, where can they find you, and what have you been up to? You can find me on Twitter at uh, at j-o-n underscore b-o-u-c-h-e-r and if you want for some for whatever reason you want to hear more of me um i don't see why you wouldn't uh i was a, I was a guest on an episode uh, number 309 of the old school wrestling podcast where i talked about a don leo jonathan versus dory funk jr match from japan december 75 and we talk a bunch about don leo jonathan so if you've got if you've got the mormon giant on your mind he interests you give that a listen it's an hour hour 15 not very long not a very long commitment so all right that's a that's a plus for you that's the um, old school wrestling problem? podcast oswp baby old oswp baby all right so check that out and our blog at charting the is updated regularly and this podcast comes out the fourth thursday of every month to be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. This is Al Getz signing off. We'll see you guys in July. John, as always, thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next month. See you in July, guys.